Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. <laughs> well... Oh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Civics 101 is supported in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. The president has made clear that what we are seeing on America's streets is unacceptable. Violence, looting, anarchy, lawlessness are not to be tolerated. Plain and simple. These criminal acts are not protest, they are not statements, these are crimes that harm innocent American citizens. I do see a kind of inherent double standard in the way we valorize certain anger, certain property damage, and, you know, if the cause is racial justice or LGBTQ rights or women's rights, you know, our history has been much more, whoa, this is, a, this is violating the social order here. What's going on? Like, oh my God, they've kicked in a Nordstrom's. We teach literally kindergartners about the Boston Tea Party. This is Alvin Tillery. He's the director for the Center for the Study of Diversity and Democracy at Northwestern University. And I research uh, social movements and leadership, uh, and I've been writing about the Black Lives Matter movement with hopes that I, some of my research can help them succeed. I'm Nick Capodice. I'm Hannah McCarthy. And this is Civics 101, the podcast refresher course on the basics of how our democracy works. And since we are in the midst of the largest nationwide protest I've seen in my lifetime, we wanted to call Alvin to tell us about it, about protest, what it is, what it does, and has done throughout our country's history. Now, in terms of what it is, at its most basic level, it's people expressing their disapproval of something, right? Yes, and... uh. Did you happen to see the thing Sesame Street put up this week of Elmo trying to add? Did you see that? I did see that. Elmo doesn't understand. What's a protest? Oh, a, a, a protest is when people come together to show they are upset and disagree about something. They want to make others aware of the problem. Through protesting, people are able to share their feelings and work together to make things better. But legally, constitutionally, Protest has been with us from the very beginning. It's written into our founding documents. The Constitution makes protest along with speech and uh, the free exercise of religion sacrosanct. It is the charter right, one of the, one of the charter rights in the First Amendment. The Fundamental Freedoms Doctrine says that the First Amendment is really the one that is necessary uh, in order to make all of the other freedoms operative. So... Uh, there's what we call the, 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 the right to assembly clause in the First Amendment. So Congress shall make no law, right? And then it says in the, uh, the assembly 
clause. It says Congress shall make no law to prohibit the right of the people to peaceably, peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Now, some people separate that and say that there are two clauses, the petition clause and the and the peaceable assembly clause. But I, I always saw them as kind of one clause. I haven't heard of the petition clause. What's the difference between uh, protest and petition? So petition is, is writing to your government, uh, sort of expressing yourself to your government. And people could petition about anything, except for a period when slavery was essentially off limits. The, the, the gag rule that was in Congress in the 1830s uh, up to the Civil War said, you know, you couldn't even write to Congress or make petitions to Congress about ending slavery. This gag order was in the 1830s when abolitionists had sent hundreds of thousands of petitions to Congress calling for an end to slavery, and Congress passed a blanket resolution that any petitions doing so are to be tabled indefinitely. A former president, John Quincy Adams, he fought against it for eight years until it was finally lifted in 1844. But we don't see the Supreme Court weighing in on citizens' rights to petition the government until much, much later. We really don't even get a lot of good jurisprudence on assembly and freedom of speech uh, until the, the, the cases that come uh, at the height of World War I. All of the, the, the cases where the Supreme Court actually limits freedom of speech in order to protect uh, government interests. These cases, which all arose during World War I, are the first time that the Supreme Court rules on the constitutionality of protest. The big three are Schenck v. U.S. That's where Charles Schenck was arrested for handing out pamphlets that criticized the draft. The next one's Gitlow v. New York, where the court decided Benjamin Gitlow's pro-communism manifesto was not protected speech. And finally, Abrams v. United States, where the court said the same about leaflets that advocated workers in ammunition factories go on strike. You know, the great irony is that the, the formal elaboration in the early 20th century of our rights to, you know, not only petition and sort of act as individuals, but typically part of a protest. Those rights are, are, are enumerated uh, in cases where the Supreme Court limits the freedoms of the individuals involved. All right. So I've, I've got this. That's how the court started to rule against the rights of protesters. But I'm interested in laws regarding the response to protest. Have there been any cases that address the powers of police? Yeah, well, police power comes at the local and state level. So many of these cases began with police action, and then the issue at stake rose through the court system to the Supreme Court. So what are the big cases where constitutional right to protest was protected? Um, Alvin said there have been pretty much two. And we've talked about both of them quite a bit on our show. Uh, Tinker v. Des Moines, that's the one where black armbands worn by students to protest the war were protected speech. And Texas v. Johnson, where the same was decided regarding burning a flag. However, this isn't to say that there haven't been other legal rulings on the right to protest, rulings that have protected the rights of groups that may surprise you. Uh, and the other irony is that when the court in the 20th century has expanded and protected protesters, they've typically been 
the most noxious protesters that we would want. Like, so the Klan can burn crosses, uh, you know, uh, in the 2003 the case. The opinion of the court number 011107, Virginia against Black, will be announced by Justice O'Connor. The act of burning a cross may mean that the person is engaging in constitutionally proscribable intimidation, or it may mean only that the person is engaged in core political speech. The prima facie provision... And it's not just one case. It's not just Virginia v. Black in the early 2000s. Protest by the KKK specifically was protected in Brandenburg v. Ohio in 1969. In the Brandenburg v. Ohio case... You know, the, 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 the Supreme Court says the 14th Amendment does not draw down or limit the ability of the Klan to advocate violence at its rallies, right? Unless they are going to, you know, say, let's go and lynch black people now or let's go and burn the police station down now, right? But you can you know, go to a Klan rally and say, you know, we hate black people and, you know, let's use Second Amendment solutions to get out Barack Obama. You can do all of that. Uh, thanks to the Brandenburg case. So I want to, if we can, get back to something Alvin mentioned at the very beginning, and that's that politicians and the public alike are calling for nonviolent protest and referencing the work done by Martin Luther King Jr. and Rosa Parks. Yeah, so when we talk of peaceful protest, Alvin shared his polling data with me, and he said the numbers of those who oppose the current Black Lives Matter protests are nearly identical with those who opposed NFL player Colin Kaepernick's demonstrably nonviolent action of kneeling during the national anthem to protest the treatment of minorities. You know, certainly many people would agree that it's very American to, to protest. And, and it's a There's part a of our There's a difference between a protest and a disrespectful protest. All right? There's a difference, and everybody should know that. My solution to this... Then there's the fact that we teach kindergartners that destroying property in protest when it's tea, the Boston Tea Party, is great and necessary. So what's going on there? Do you know the modern-day value of that tea that was dumped in the harbor? No. $1.7 million. First thing I'll say is that, you know, attacking... British authority by destroying property was a very common way that the colonists protested. The Tea Party in Boston Harbor is interesting because uh, they dress as Native Americans uh, because they want to hide their identity. So they don't even do it in the in in, in their own under their own identities. They they hide under the guise of indigenous people. Which, if you know anything about indigenous history in in Massachusetts, it's absolutely preposterous. <laughs> They'd been sort of decimated by uh, the colonists, you know, 80, 90 years earlier in, in in the Pequot Wars, right? And so, you know, the the, the idea that the indigenous people would have snuck into the harbor to burn tea, right, or, tur- or dump dump tea into the harbor. Is preposterous, right? But but um, the, the, there was a class element to all of these uprisings, right? These were the working people. These were the Scotch Irish immigrants. These were Crispus addicts, the biracial former slaves, who were the kind of vanguard of the revolution, <laughs> right? who, the, you know, Sam Adams had organized in the Sons of Liberty to get out and to make these kinds of jarring, disruptive, 
often violent protests to raise the consciousness of the other colonists who are like, whoa, like, I don't like paying these tea and stamp taxes either, but like, we're still British, man, like, calm down, right? And so this kind of, um, you know, rallying effect behind property damage is part of what the, 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 the early organizers hope to do. Alvin said that there have been, so far in American history, three movements that changed our country. The Boston Tea Party, Shays Rebellion, which began in 1786 over wartime debt and led to our necessity for a new constitution, and finally the long, still continuing civil rights movement, which stretches from early abolitionists to its peak in the 1950s and 60s. You know, scholars have for a while now been pointing out that there's been lots of violence and there have been a lot of riots that maybe you and I didn't learn about in school for many reasons, one of which is that the victims were not white. Yeah, this is after the Civil War. Uh, one of the first that comes to mind is the one that was depicted in the TV series, The Watchmen, the bombing of Tulsa, Oklahoma, 1921. Those are riots that we have forgotten intentionally because they were riots that were done to keep the racial order in place. Those 130, whatever the count is, riots that happened between the Reconstruction and 1945, those were race riots that were done uh, because, again, low status elements were upset, typically that you know, blacks or Asians, what have you, had violated some imaginary you know, segregation line in these places, uh, and hundreds and hundreds of people died in each instance, right? This is the modal, you know, riot in American history. <laughs> it's a race riot uh, to destroy, you know, communities of color, typically to seize property. We look what happened in the Greenwood District in uh, Oklahoma, Tulsa, Oklahoma, Wilmington, North Carolina, East St. Louis, Illinois, right? these are riots that raise these communities. The outsiders, the black, brown, you know, Asian outsiders flee. <laughs> and then low status whites claim all that property, right? If the, these, are, they're, these are redistributions through riotous behavior, right? And so, you know, we don't like to talk much about that. Most Americans think that when you think race riot, you think, oh, what happened in Watts and Newark after Dr. King was assassinated, right? And that's just a drop in the bucket of our, our history of, of, of rioting in this country. These riots against communities of color resulted in their property being taken? Yeah. Taking property was the express purpose of many of these riots. The name for it is white capping. I read that between 1880 and 1900, there were 239 documented instances of it. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because <laughs> the charcoal mess. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? <clears throat> Hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Life is a highway. 
And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hey there, everyone. Hey, folks. The whole Civics 101 team is here in D.C. for a week. That's why you hear cars and stuff whizzing by. Uh, We are in the district to talk to the people that we talk about on a daily basis. And a lot of those people work in the executive branch. That is the largest employer in the world. And a lot of those people work in the civil service, where, after the assassination of James Garfield, it's a long story, they take an exam to make sure that they are the right person for their job. But if you run a business, and you're not the federal government, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all, but to match instead. With Indeed. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. 23 hires are made on Indeed every minute, and their matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use it, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash civics. Just go to Indeed.com slash civics right now to support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash civics. Terms and conditions apply. You need to hire. You need Indeed. Okay, Nick. You have talked to Alvin about the history and protections and lack of protections around protest. Uh, But due to the fact that many Americans are viewing current protests in the context of that long civil rights movement, I wanted to talk to someone intimate with that story. Well, you know, Hannah... eh. I'm a child of the movement, and I say that with a great deal of pride and humility. This is Bakari Sellers. He's a political commentator on CNN. He was the youngest African-American elected official in the nation, and he is the author of the recent book, My Vanishing Country. My father got started. His activism um, was perked at a very young age. He was 10 years old um, when young Emmett Till was brutally murdered and thrown in the bottom of the Mississippi River. And... Um, that picture went viral. You know, we're having this conversation about these images that we're seeing of black bodies that have been killed um, and, and brutally lynched right before our eyes. And for him, it was Emmett Till in 1955. And Emmett Till's mother had the strength to allow the world to see what hate, bigotry, and racism had done to her son. Bakari's father is Cleveland Sellers. This is a man who led sit-ins in his hometown of Denmark, South Carolina. He went to Howard University, where he met prominent civil rights organizer Stokely Carmichael, and later worked during Freedom Summer in 1964, uh, when several hundred people went to Mississippi to help to register African-American voters. And then he got a phone call that um, some of his friends had gone missing. And as we're talking about this word that comes up a lot now, allies, Um, You know, I think about allies in history and I think about Andrew Goodman and Mickey Schwerner um, and James Cheney. Goodman, Schwerner and Cheney had come south for Freedom Summer. Uh, They were kidnapped and murdered on the project's first day. That's June 21st. My father led search missions into Philadelphia, Mississippi to look for their bodies. Um, Their bodies were found behind the home of one of the local sheriff's deputies and ministers in the town, Edgar Ray Killen. And that was his first indoctrination indoctrination into the movement. And then he became involved in the most deadly civil rights demonstration this country's ever seen. On February 8th, 1968, they were protesting um, what the history books call the last vestige of discrimination. Um, It was a small whites-only bowling alley in Little Orangeburg, South Carolina. 
Uh, Mr. Floyd, why have you uh, not permitted Negroes to bowl at your bowling alley here in Orangeburg? Because I have my own customers that patronize me 52 weeks a year. They support me year in and year out. I need no other business. And um, after they protested, they went, they went back to their campus. I have to stress the fact they went back to their campus. They built huge bonfires. And they couldn't foresee what would happen next. They didn't foresee that South Carolina State Troopers would line up along the embankment in front of their campus. They didn't foresee that they would close ranks like they did. Um, they didn't foresee that they would have um, shotguns loaded with deadly buckshots. And they didn't foresee it would be turned on them with deadly intent. And it's eerie to talk about this now with the backdrop of everything that we have going on in this country today. But state troopers fired shots into the group of students and they killed three, Henry Smith, Samuel Hammond and Delano Middleton. And they wounded my father. He was one of 28. He was wounded. Had a little salt to injury when he got to the hospital. Um, what else do you do to an activist? But they arrested him. And they arrested him and charged him with five felony counts. All eight officers were charged. They were all tried. They were all found not guilty. And um, my father went to trial. They backdated his indictment from February 8th to February 6th. He was charged, tried, and convicted of rioting. He became the first and only one man riot in the history of this country. But, you know, for me, it's the fact that that story isn't told or remembered that hurts more than anything. We know about Kent State, but we don't know about Orangeburg. And Nick, I have to admit to you, I did not know about Orangeburg until I read Bakari's book. Yeah, no, me neither. And though the officers were acquitted, Cleveland Sellers served seven months in state prison. So I asked Bakari, coming from this deep history of protest, what he thought were some tools and necessities Civics 101 listeners could use when and if they get involved. I mean, you, the number one lesson of activism is you never ask for permission. You ask for forgiveness. I'll never forget people were mad, you know, when, um, you know, we were protesting on airports and, stop, and stopping traffic. And people were like, man, why don't you protest, you know, in a more considerate fashion? You're like, what? That's not the way protest works, man. Protest. I was having this conversation with my wife this morning. I was like, protest is messy. It always is. It's supposed to make, it's supposed to make civil society uncomfortable. Go, go block a highway, right? Go, you know, go make sure people miss their flights. You know, be, you know, build unrest, but make sure it's nonviolent. But, you know, make sure you have that. But before you write a sign and go outside, you have some work to do. Uh, throughout this time, um, you have to know why you're protesting. You have to know why you're getting involved. I guess if we're doing, um, you know, kind of a civics one-on-one, I think the first step is trying to figure out why, um, why is this purposeful? Why is this meaningful? And why is this something that I should do? I don't want people who don't feel like this is necessary to get involved. I mean, it's not if you don't feel like it's your struggle or you want to sit on the sideline, that's fine. You know, all black people didn't march for civil rights. You don't have to get involved. But for me, this is I, I don't believe that I can ever be free if we're not, not all free. And so you have to find out your purpose, which is step one. And then step two, you have to be intentional and purposeful. But what about your civil rights when you're protesting? Is there anything you need to know about what the police can and can't do? Bakari says that that's helpful to know. Yes, absolutely. But he stressed that that is not the most important factor here. You should definitely know your rights, but you should also realize 
um, that it can go south really quickly with the mixture that we had in our streets today, with the mixture of armed law enforcement and military and protesters. So my, my, I'm telling you all that to say when you protest, your number one goal should not be to um, give an officer a legal lesson on the streets. It should be to make it home safely. Knowing your rights is very important. Making it home safely is much more important. Hannah, I, I saw Bakari on CNN after the killing of George Floyd, and there was so much pain and anger and exhaustion. And he talked about having to have discussions about all of this with his black children. Did he say anything about this protest and the conversations we're having with our families? Yeah, he did. He had one specific question for all parents. You know, are you, are you loving my children the same way you love yours? Are you teaching them empathy? Are you teaching them to value our humanity? You know, those are the type of questions as, as a country we, we've never really asked ourselves. And all of these before you hit the streets, right? Like before you go out, these are questions you have to ask yourself first at home to prepare yourself to go out in the world, to be a hero for others. You have to be a hero at home first. You know, I write, um, one of the lessons my father taught me was that heroes walk among us. And I want to disabuse people of the notion that you have to be a superhero to be a leader. You can be a leader in your own community. You can be a leader in your own church, in your own precinct, in your own neighborhood, your own school, PTA, etc. You know, right now in this country, you only have two choices. You can either be racist or anti-racist. It doesn't do you any good to sit at home and say, well, I'm not racist, but you need to get out and be on the forefront pushing these things. And um, the leadership that, that's required right now is one of courage. And I do recognize and one of the things we all have to recognize is that there's certain rooms where you, know, where you would be a better messenger than I, right? Although we're coming with the same message, there'd be people who are more inclined and vice versa to listen to me versus listen to you. And we have to be courageous enough to speak to people who um, have preconceived notions, who are our friends, colleagues that we work with and family. And we have to be ready to confront them with some of the ignorant notions that they may present. Um, that's the only way that we can begin to heal. Can you spell out what Bakari means by that? I think that what he means is that you know, sometimes a white girl, which I am, is going to be listened to more closely or effectively than a black girl in a certain space. And part of being anti-racist means recognizing that and utilizing it. With nearly 300 arrests since August, the protest has become a movement said to be the largest gathering of Native Americans in modern history. Today's episode was produced by me, Nick Capodice, with Hannah McCarthy, with help from Jackie Fulton and Felix Poon. Erica Janik is our executive producer, and Maureen McMurray is director of content. 
Music in the episode by Chris Zabriskie, Blue Dot Sessions, Lee Rosevere, the Advent Chamber Orchestra, Maiden, and Azura. Civics 101 is supported in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and as a production of NHPR, New Hampshire Public Radio. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. (laughs) Well. Ooh, yeah. That happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.